0: Welcome back to Moments That Matter. Over the last few weeks, Ukraine has become increasingly front and center in global news, especially as they are the present target of Russia's aggression. And for those who know Dr. Paul Schatzberger or have been following this podcast, you're well aware of his serving as a missionary in Ukraine from 2002 under 2009. As events have unfolded overseas, I've not only found his wisdom to be incredibly perceptive, but also his foretelling of events has been eerily accurate, truly. Today, we have a chance to talk with Dr. Paul Schatzberger and gain a better understanding of what's happening behind the front lines in Ukraine. Welcome, Paul, to your own podcast, Moments That Matter.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it
0: uh well let's first things first, clarify for me, if you will, why I hear people using the term the Ukraine uh because you don't refer to other nations as the Mexico or the Nigeria <laughs> or the America uh why the Ukraine
1: Yeah, so this is a holdover from the Cold War that I wish would just go away. Um, Ukraine was known as the Ukraine when it was a territory, when it was a republic of the USSR. And so it was kind of attached, you know, um, to this greater entity since independence, 1991, uh, the correct terminology is Ukraine. And, uh, just so, you know, listeners really appreciate why this is important because for us, it's just an article, you know, it was the big deal, but, uh, this is, talking about the Ukraine in Russia is one way that the, the Russians have of either making fun of Ukraine or of quote, putting Ukraine in its place. Because, and in, in what they would say is not Ukraine. And what it means is, you know, kind of like little brother uh, or still part of Russia or something like that. In other words, not independent. And this is fundamentally the source of pretty much the entire conflict, uh, because Russia still considers Ukraine to be
0: the little brother. Wow, very interesting. It seems to be more than just semantics, and it's it's. Uh, I hear different news organizations interviewing people, and they seem to borrow this antiquated term, and uh, I think that clarity is helpful. Well, let's start at the beginning. Maybe you could summarize for us your introduction to and involvement with Ukraine as you started your ministry there in Kyiv.
1: We were invited to go to Ukraine as a uh, missionary couple, my wife and I, uh, as advisors in February 2002, and uh, we knew nothing about Ukraine. We had no facility with the language. Uh, It was literally just to go and help some younger Ukrainians who had this institute, which was a network of Bible schools. Uh, And there were some issues, some problems, and they just wanted an older couple to kind of come alongside them. And so uh we found out about it in February 2002 we made a kind of preliminary visit in May 2002 and by August 2002 we were living there. It was it was a very quick transition. And so we and we brought our 13-year-old young son um and it was only supposed to be for a year. I took a year leave uh from a university, UNC Wilmington. And halfway through, uh, for various reasons and different circumstances, uh, it was just clear to us that we needed to stay. And so I quit my job and uh, we sold the house and we stayed for a second year, then a third, then a fourth, fifth, sixth, and a seventh. So uh, we left in 2009.
0: I love your perspective. And it's been shared on this podcast A few times. And in some of your books, you've written so wonderfully about your time in Ukraine. So uh, as we were talking a few weeks ago, you mentioned something that I found was very interesting. A lot of people have been talking about Vladimir Putin wanting to uh, rebuild the USSR. You stepped back a little bit further. If you would, for for our listeners, take us back to the pre-USSR days... What is the history of Ukraine and Russia? And was Russia even in the picture early on in the history of Ukraine as a country?
1: Yeah, the original empire was called the kiev Rus Empire. Kiev being now the capital of Ukraine, Rus being Russia. And uh, that was the case for a long time. And uh, so we're talking about you know, roughly a thousand years ago something like that, uh, kind of the heyday of, of that empire. And uh, so it's important to note that uh, Kiev was the capital and Moscow did not even exist. So you, you do get a sense of you know how long ago this was. It was, you know we're talking about 1000 AD, something like that. Um, so <clears throat> when Putin thinks about Ukraine, as I said, they do think about the little brother, but they also think about, the fact that the original capital was Kyiv. Therefore, Ukraine has not only uh, importance in terms of its resources, uh, potentially today, but also its history. And how can you have a rebuilt empire, which is certainly one of Putin's goals, without having Ukraine? And so uh, Ukraine has just become this sort of apple of his eye um, in the worst way possible. And uh, it, it is just, you know, over the last, especially, well, oh, 15 years or so, uh, it's just been kind of one incursion after the next, whether it's political or geographical, militarily, uh, whatever it might be. And he's just been up to this point chipping away And so uh, originally it was politically uh, in 2004 uh, with the orange revolution, uh, he had his guy who was president of Ukraine and very much a puppet. And uh, that puppet was ostensibly voted in. And then that election was found to be uh, painted and so the people called for another election, and then uh, that president, uh, again ostensibly, was was no longer president, and uh, and uh, the the leader of the Orange Revolution became president. Well, he tried it all over again, Putin. That is, uh, in two thousand fourteen. And this became known as the Maidan Revolution, and um, and it was the same puppet president. <laughs> um, and finally, this guy was kicked out of the country. But in the process of you know Ukraine getting a fairly significant victory, uh, what they lost was Crimea, and uh, Crimea became a territory of Russia. Um, And, you know, there are essentially almost no countries that recognize this to be the case except for Russia. Uh, But nonetheless, they, you know, the people there have Russian passports and it's considered by Russia to be part of Russia. Um, Then came the conflict in the east and uh, Lugansk and Donetsk. And uh, that's been going on for eight years um and again it's just a way of kind of chipping away at some of the territory and originally before this invasion uh which has turned out to be literally almost countrywide in ukraine uh, the thought was that what putin was going to go for was some kind of land bridge between the eastern conflict area and crimea Uh, but as it turns out he had much greater ambitions and Now he's going for
0: a lot of different parts of Ukraine. So it seems like this has been building for some time and hasn't just shown up. And in some eerily prophetic words, just a few weeks ago, you told me, watch after the Olympics, because that's when I think something's going to happen. Surely enough, that is exactly what happened. Uh, So this conflict really has gone on for quite a number of years and has sort of come to a head recently. In that light, there have been some unlikely heroes that have arisen, President Zelensky being one of them. Uh, People talking about his bravery, his uh, attractive good looks, his uh, work in media. Is his establishment as president. uh, Part of the ongoing poke in the eye of Russia because he's not a bought and paid for pro-Russian individual. What was his background and how did all that come to pass?
1: Well, he's an actor, (laughs) he's a comedian, and uh, it, it reminds me very much of the movie Back to the Future and, you know, whoever the character's name is, the young one, trying to talk about, you know, 1985 and and Doc asks, Well, who's president? He says, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> he says, The actor, you know, um, and who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. And it, it's kind of like that. Um, the idea, first of all, that Zelensky got elected was kind of amazing uh, because, you know, you have all these professional politicians, and then you have this guy who has literally no experience in politics and uh and i will tell you that you know in general i think the ukrainian opinion of him was not high how about that uh so i you know he obviously this conflict has just changed things dramatically for the ukrainian people they are quite proud of how he is carrying himself uh in all of this and as you say you know he's um quite good on television and quite good on the internet and you know well, what about that? He's an actor, you know? So in that sense, kind of like Ronald Reagan, um, he has the ability to really get his message across. Now, the thing about Russia, you are absolutely correct that he is not bought and paid for. Um, In fact, he is uh, very much of, you know, an unknown quantity and someone that Russia has always looked down with suspicion um like they don't know exactly kind of what direction he's going to go he didn't seem to care too much about russia but he wants to you know keep up relations with russia but at the same time he's talking to the eu and he wants to be in nato and all these kinds of things so um you know they they knew that Zelensky was not their friend but they weren't sure that he was their enemy and um so he really kept them guessing until basically until this invasion and uh, now he's just hardline, you know, um, and and I'm actually surprised in some ways that Zelensky sent a delegation uh, to the border with Bel- Belarus to talk to the Russian delegation because I just didn't think that Zelensky had the time of day uh, for Russia, but he he's keeping the door open uh, to the possibility that there may be a, a resolution to just other than. Militarily.
0: This is something I'm a, a bit fuzzy on myself. There seems to be a lot of blocks of power and sort of jockeying of Russia and Ukraine, and then NATO's on kind of hanging out on the side trying to protect their own interests. And then I saw today that he's applied Zelensky for membership in the EU. What's the balance of all of those together? And what does it mean for Ukraine not to be involved with NATO, but a desire to be part of NATO? Uh, is that sort of one of the arguments that Russia has made that they feel encroached upon by NATO? Where does all of that shake out?
1: Yeah, this it's such a complicated situation, um, and I would say, being as unbiased as I possibly can be, that there is blame to go around uh, to a lot of countries for this situation. It's not just Russia, uh, because in the late nineties in the two thousands, there was a tremendous expansion and one would say over expansion of the European union and NATO. Um, It was just kind of a y'all come kind of period. And mostly it was because Russia was very weak. And so uh, people saw their opportunity and just kind of gathered together you know, with Europe and with NATO, and and that's fine as far as it goes. Uh, but now Russia is a little bit stronger and is able to have a little bit more influence. And they're saying basically, "Look, you've taken completely away from us all of the buffer countries. You know, the Baltic countries, and Poland, and Hungary, and." Uh, Czech Republic and i whether whether or not they were part of the of the bloc originally you know with with USSR uh, nonetheless there was this sense at least that Europe was a little bit farther away you know it was more Germany France you know and the UK etc now uh NATO and the EU are on their doorstep they're on their border and i've said this elsewhere but you know ukraine the word literally means borderland and so it's always been considered somebody's border and for russia i think this is kind of like the last straw you know this is this is that final line in the sand that they cannot it's it's unconscionable to them that Ukraine would be part of the EU and part of NATO and that they would literally be surrounded because they would be on their, on their West side anyway. Um, and, and, you know, we just have to appreciate it. one thing that we don't really get over here in America is, uh, you know, we've got oceans on both sides of this and, you know, who's going to invade us on, over land? Is it Canada? Is it Mexico? Yeah, probably not. Um, But for Russia, they've been invaded and invaded. And, you know, most recently Nazi Germany um, in the 20th century. And that's that's over land. And it was, you know, just jumping off from exactly where, you know, Germany sort of ended, if you will. um, Their territory that they had taken over during World War II. Uh, Likewise, they invaded Ukraine. Which is part of the Soviet Union, and um, so so Russia has a little bit different view of uh, the potential of countries invading. We're not even talking about lobbing missiles in right now. You know, we're just talking about a land war. Basically, what's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine, and it's very very serious business to them. And so, in one way, you can say, okay, Putin's really paranoid. Um, He's delusional you know i mean they're they're coming up with all sorts of psychological profiles for this guy and it may all be true but at the same time there's some history behind it and uh and the people know especially the older generation uh you know that lived through world war ii or they heard the stories or whatever they have a different perspective on this kind of thing
0: that's very helpful because i think to the casual observer it seems like one day uh, Russia just woke up on the wrong side of the bed and decided to do something, and um, to to understand the background, I think is so significant. Well, if you could look in your crystal ball, here we are, March the first, uh, when we're recording this, and this has been going on for five, six days. Things are changing rapidly by the day. Where do you see this going forward, and what do you think maybe the coming days or week? Will hold, especially as you've heard from uh, your friends that are there in Ukraine on the ground now? Well, everything I'm hearing from people that we know
1: uh, is that Ukraine will never surrender, never give up. Um, And, you know, the, the news has been obsessed with Molotov cocktails. Uh, that's all they can talk about is how many Molotov cocktails people are making. You know, if it comes down to that, Ukraine will fight on the streets. They they will absolutely use those Molotov cocktails. But I saw some, some footage a couple of days ago that made me think about things a little bit differently. Uh, it was a Russian column and it was a view from a drone. And the drone made a hit, and that column was just obliterated. And um, and I think right now that's the difference. Um, I I think perhaps Russia it was thinking about Ukraine in terms of the Soviet Union and in terms of Soviet equipment and that kind of thing. Um, but you know the Ukraine Ukraine has access to all of the West, uh, the U.S., NATO, equipment, training, and, uh, you know, if I could just kind of rewind uh, a moment for everybody, Um, I was in the Navy for 16 years, and most of that time, it was during the Cold War, Uh, but right at the end, you know, the wall came down, and uh, then the republics of the USSR became independent, including Ukraine. And one of the things that happened almost immediately was that American delegations, including military, were allowed into Russia for the first time to look at some of this military equipment. And not only Russia, but Ukraine and and the other republics. And the reports that came back Our people were just appalled. They they were like, "This the the ships are rusted out, the military equipment doesn't work, uh, there's no infrastructure," and and this is who we were so fearful of, you know, uh, during the Cold War. And so, perhaps when Russia thinks about Ukraine, maybe that's what they're thinking about. You know, well, they've just got hand-me-down stuff, and you know, they're the people are brave, but they're just going to give up. Well, I tell you what, Ukraine has played it smart over the last eight years or so of that eastern conflict, and they've gotten a lot of training and a lot of equipment uh, from the West, and also, by the way, they have access to all of the West's intelligence, um, so they know exactly what Russia's doing in and out of their country. Um, and so uh, the idea that it's going to come down to a street fight and Molotov cocktails, I, I think, is a little bit misleading. Uh, you know, they, they are brave people, but they're also really, really smart. And um, so I think, I think Russia heavily, heavily underestimated um, Ukraine. And so for all of those reasons, um, that's why Kiev <laughs> did not fall in quote just a few days, as all the news outlets were saying. Uh, Kiev still stands, um, and you know, yeah, you've got that forty mile long convoy that's making its way towards Kiev. But everybody knows about that convoy. Everybody knows the makeup of that convoy, and and we are uh, just kind of simple if we think that. Ukraine isn't planning a way <laughs> to get at that convoy before it ever gets to Kyiv. Um, so uh, what do I think will happen in the future? I, I really don't know. Um, and it's, it, it would be kind of foolish, I think, of me to try to uh, predict too much. But uh, I will say that you know Russia's short-term objective seems to be the encirclement of kiev and uh and the replacement of the government that's that's kind of been putin's mo you know for a long time now uh, as well as just kind of you know blunt force you know used against these cities the people uh just like syria just like georgia um but that's not how Ukraine is thinking. Ukraine is not thinking in the short term. Ukraine is thinking in the long term. And, uh, and so, whereas you know, Russia may have some tactical victories, um, Ukraine is gonna have the strategic victory. Uh, I am absolutely sure of it. Uh, it may be sooner or it may be later, um, but I feel sorry for Russia if they try to control Ukraine as a country, um, because there will be such an insurgence um, and such an underground movement and they will make life for Russia, uh, more than difficult. It, it will just be, um, a place that they don't want to be. And I, I foresee Russia getting out of Ukraine. Um, now whether that happens this week or if it happens, you know, in a few years or something like that, um, I've, I've been amazed being honest that that Eastern conflict in Ukraine has gone on for eight years. Uh, I just, it, it's hard to imagine. Um, so could Russia just sort of take up position, you know at various places, especially along the North, their border, the Belarusian uh, border. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly possible. Um, and just be a thorn in the side of Ukraine. But I think Ukraine sees this as a way to finally get rid of Russia. Um, and so I, I believe that's what's going to happen.
0: Wow, very telling. And you're exactly right. I feel like predictions were dire early on. Uh, Kiev will fall in 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And... To see how things have uh, developed has been quite interesting. I don't wanna throw a curveball in here, but just to get your thoughts, we're here in 2022 and we're at the apex of development of social media thus far in our world. What role do you think social media has played in this latest conflict, especially for we who are here in the West? observing things halfway around the world. Uh, What role do you think social media plays in these kind of conflicts these days?
1: Uh, Well, for Ukraine, it's indispensable. I'm sure Russia wishes that social media had never been created uh, because the news is instantaneous and the requests for help are instantaneous. Um, You know, we just had a request, apparently, from President Zelensky to Elon Musk uh, you know, it came as a tweet, but it was almost like a personal message. And, um, you know, help us with our internet. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, there there's the help that they need. The cyber attacks that have happened uh, lately, you know, Russia attacking Ukraine, these were identified, I mean, literally within an hour uh, by Microsoft. And within three hours, They had, uh, you know, control of the situation and they were coordinating with the White House. Uh, As far as humanitarian relief, social media has been absolutely essential uh, and Western money is just pouring in, not only to Ukraine, but also to uh, the countries where people have fled to as refugees, uh, especially Poland, but other countries as well. And... So it's like, hey, we need this. Boom, there it is. You know, hey, we need that. Boom, there it is. And uh, and I'm not saying that you know they're not in need. Um, there are many people in need, but it would just be so desperate, I think, without social media. And so I'm I consider that to be God's blessing for for Ukraine. And that's certainly how I've kept up. You know, there's about 15 friends that i'm just going back to and going back to now now what's happening now it's happening uh, most of them have fled the country but there are still some a couple people in kiev couple people in in harkov um and i'm just you know asking you know is that we're hearing this is it true um, or what is the need or how can we help or how can we pray um so it's it's made a tremendous difference to me just feeling connected you know to people and i and i know that that's true for literally millions of people in america who have some sort of connection with with ukraine
0: yeah it really has quite been quite phenomenal to be able to read posts of people who are living in an apartment complex in kiev taking pictures out of their window of the horizon which is what you just saw on cnn or Macy on CNN within an hour or something. To get those updates in real time is quite amazing. Uh, We've heard a lot of talk about sanctions that have hit Russia. From a sort of geopolitical side of things, is that enough to deter them? Or do they see, uh, I know inside of Russia right now, there's a lot of trouble with people losing access to their funds and all that kind of stuff with all these sanctions that have taken place. Do you think there'll be enough to, to have a, an uprising in Russia to alter the plans of the country at large? Or is the overwhelming commitment to uh, achieve Ukraine strong enough to not take into consideration the pain that these sanctions have caused?
1: Well, you know, you, you have to know that the interest in taking Ukraine is top down. It's, it's not the people. Um, the people don't understand in general why ukrainians are being killed um, why the country is being attacked you know bear in mind that uh, a lot of russians have relatives in ukraine and of course a lot of russians also have sons that are fighting in ukraine and uh there's a lot that's just not understood and and you're seeing the protests uh all across russia against these you know the, the various incursions well that's just kind of a philosophical, you know, problem. Uh, like, you know, why are we doing this? But then you have the economic problem that is following. Um, when we were living in Ukraine, the exchange rate to the dollar was about 23 rubles. 23 rubles equals uh, one dollar. Um, the exchange rate right now, I'm looking at it as 113. 113 rubles for $1. The ruble is just crashing and and people are trying to get their money out and they can't. What they're trying to do in Russia desperately is change the rubles to something that has actually some meaning, um, which would be like dollars or even gold or whatever. Um, and they can't, they can't get to it. Um, interestingly, by the way, the exchange rate in Ukraine has stayed almost the same through all of this. And people still trying to get money out, but it's just a different kind of situation. So the people are feeling this in a lot of different ways. And I'm speaking about in Russia. And is that going to affect the Kremlin? Is it going to affect Putin? That's the question. You know, is there. A line at which you know somebody is going to say to putin who has his ear um you know what we've really gone far enough or maybe we've gone too far um as i understand some of the oligarchs are are balking now uh at putin's plans um but you know to communicate with him i mean it, you may have seen some of the news coverage of his meetings lately with people he's he's very far away from, from these people. And it doesn't have to be somebody from another country like Macron, you know, it's his own cabinet and he's like in an almost in another room uh, meeting with them. And it's just really weird looking. Um, So you get the sense of somebody uh, who's very isolated and uh, is going to follow their own instincts, no matter what people tell them. Um, So, is it possible that the economy would make a difference enough, um, fast enough, um, to make a difference in this conflict? Uh, that's just an open question. Um, people, people consider sanctions to be, you know, a long-term kind of weapon to use. They don't consider it to be short-term. Um, so, you know, some have argued, well, then. We probably should have started earlier with these uh, sanctions, but, you know, it is what it is at this point. Um, So uh, could it make a difference? Yes, it could. Um, Could it make a difference fast enough? That's the question.
0: Yeah, good counsel. That's so intriguing. Uh, Is there anything that you think Americans would do well to know about the conflict or maybe something that they're missing or any additional wisdom or guidance that... uh, From your time in Ukraine and your friends there uh, that you think listeners would benefit from knowing?
1: Um, This is a very resilient people. Uh, They've been forced to be resilient uh, throughout their history. Uh, This is an invaded country. This country has been invaded every century for centuries, and uh, they have been under various rulers, uh, various empires throughout their history. Um, they have very, actually, very little history of being independent. And so, uh, but but you need to know that their heroes are the Cossacks. And the Cossacks were the freedom fighters. Um, and they are the ones who who fought for independence. And the people fighting now, and I'm talking about not just army, but civilian, uh, they see themselves as modern-day Cossacks. And, uh, you know, they they are now, they are the, the new generation fighting for independence. Um, and when you speak, start speaking in those terms, you understand there's kind of almost a destiny to it and a willingness to just take it to the end uh, that may, in fact, not exist uh, for the Russians. Um, the Russians you know, a lot of those soldiers are just conscripts and they don't know what they're getting into. They don't know why they're there. Um, there there have been stories of, you know, the Russians just simply uh, transporting these soldiers into Ukraine. They didn't even know they were in Ukraine, you know, like, hey, go and fight. And when then they find out that they're in Ukraine, then they stop fighting um, because again, there's all this connection, you know, between Russia and Ukraine. So there's just a different perspective, a vastly different perspective uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And and this is why I say, I don't believe, you know, strategically in the long-term that Russia really has a chance at what it is that they want to do. Uh, which is absorbing uh, Ukraine and sort of recreating the empire uh, because Ukraine just isn't interested. <laughs> um, they've had a, a taste for the last thirty years of freedom. and they know, you know many of them, most of them, uh, of the older generation, they can compare. you know what's it been like the last 30 years and what's what was it like in in the Soviet Union? Um, and the, the young ones have heard the stories. And nobody wants, well, not nobody, but many do not want to go back. Um, There are are still some, you know, USSR lovers uh, in Ukraine, but uh, by and large, people do not want to go back. And so they're willing to put their lives on the line. And there's a big question whether the Russians are willing to do that. You know, the common foot soldier, whether they're willing to put their lives on the line like that. It's one thing to lob missiles, into a city uh uh, from a distance it's quite another to be on the streets fighting and uh and i do not give russia a chance on the streets against the ukrainians i i just don't but as i said earlier i think it's not going to come to that because ukrainian technology militarily is just so much more sophisticated
0: for those who Uh, have a desire to put some action to where their hearts are, what are some organizations that could be supported or maybe some ministries that would do well to receive some funds or some support from our listeners today? What would be a, a couple places, two or three, that you know that we could support?
1: Well, we can put links, you know, in the description for the podcast, um, but the two organizations that I'm associated with are Transforming Nations and Ministry to Educate and Equip. And uh, but but I know that there are just many legitimate organizations that are trying to help out. Um, some are helping on you know on the inside of Ukraine, and some are helping in these other countries because a lot of the need is uh, for the refugees. Um, there's you know over half a million refugees and probably getting ready to be quite a few more and um, so where do you put them all and how do you feed them all and you know all these kinds of things and who knows how long they're going to be there that's the other thing um, this whole thing is completely open ended um, of course, you know Ukraine itself is gonna ask for military assistance and things like that. I don't think the listeners really can uh, help much with that. Uh, and we'll let other people handle that. Um, but, you know, the the major players uh, typically for humanitarian missions um, are all involved in this. So I, I don't think it would take much looking around. Um, I, I do suggest that people... Check up on organizations, and so you're going to see a lot of um, requests over social media uh, for funds, and you just you need to know uh, that you can trust these people, and, and that they're actually going to get the money where it needs to go, and and that sort of thing. Um, I will say also that um, you know, sadly, because of the effect of the USSR, Ukraine does have a history of corruption. And so one of the ways around that um, sometimes is that you give things and not money. Um, so if, a, if an organization is being very specific about the kinds of things that they're going to give to the Ukrainians, that may be a better sign that you know they know what's going on and they're dealing with the right people.
0: Well said. And it will be... Quite an interesting next few days and weeks as we watch this unfold, but I think you've given us tremendous understanding of how we got where we're at and what the future holds. And to you, our listeners, thank you for tuning in once again. You can check the podcast description for a couple of links of some great organizations that you can support. And we hope to see you next time on Moments That Matter. Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment, especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments. Those we choose to recognize and those that were sadly ignored. Those decisions that were made with God in mind and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity.